but I didn't know none of these things. Well, I ended up on this real cold school, and every once in a while I do good, which makes them throw you in the office and say you're, you're not achieving what your, your capacity is, and then they would really hurt you more and make you do extra work, and I, I just hated everything. And uh, so by the time I got in junior high school, I was into things, you know, I was in, in the early 50s and was approaching rhythm and blues and rock and roll, you know, and I was involved, and I loved that, and I loved the leather jackets, you know, and stand on the corner and chew toothpicks and spit and talk to your girls and all that stuff while everybody else was learning the things, you know, and I'm with all these boys, you know. And uh, I like that's where it was, you know, lean against the building until the cops pushed you away, you know. Night after night out there, couldn't wait till you got into the corner so you could stand there and be cool. You know? <laughs> and, uh, that was my thing. I thought that could go on forever. I didn't know. You know I visualized doing that when I was 48, like I am today. And I know guys do that, you know. And I would have been doing it if it wasn't wrong with all these promises, but I wouldn't have died instead. But, uh, so what happened to me is I got involved in things. Because nothing ever moved fast enough for me. I'd have a lot of action because I got bored and I got full of me again. You know, I was always trying to get out of myself. And in AA, it's the same thing. You have to get out of yourself, you know. You have to like, turn yourself over. But I was always trying to do something about myself. And I found out that if I got busy, if I got active or something, I wouldn't think of myself so much. And life was a little more better. So I was getting into things, and I, I had all these fat habits about I was smoking and everything, and I couldn't afford cigarettes, and, and I had to do things. So I sold library passes, I forged them and sold them, and I sold 30 pictures, you know. And you can see the same thing on home box today. I'm 30 years ahead of my time. And I got in a lot of trouble over those pictures. And uh, finally, I got involved in, in bringing rock and roll to a little town in Swissville, you know. The first little assembly they had where they had a band up there, and I lied. I lied to the teachers. We had an audition with our little band, and we played a thing called Mockingbird Hill for the audition. And they just loved this little waltz, you know. And, and they said, Jack's band, I think maybe Jack has something now, you know, he'll behave himself. And, and, uh, and he's interested in something finally. And so we played Night Train, which was a new song, instead of Mockingbird Hill, and introduced that to Swiss Belt Junior High School. And all the kids were up in the seats, you know, and it was. It was a mess. They weren't into the kids standing on the seats in 1954. <laughs> and I mean, there was some rules flying around there, some ears getting slapped and stuff. And, and then they got to me finally when they were done with the small jobs, you know. And the first thing I know, I was out of Swissville school system and I was in this calming vocational high school, which was like in the worst section of the city of Pittsburgh, right in there where it's going on. And they put all the little boys like me in there. There's no girls in there where you can get in trouble. You know, they don't want girls. Because I always had trouble when I was around girls. And I got confused about what they thought about that, you know. Because I, like, in the early fourth, fifth grade, I'd be in the cloakroom. And they'd say, get out of the cloakroom. There's girls in the cloakroom. Well, that's why I'm in the cloakroom. <laughs> and shut up and don't do any damn thing and believe yourself. And I hated that. And that seems like all they ever wanted. So here I am down this calling vocational and absolutely everybody down there wants to beat me up for some reason. They don't like your looks. They don't like where you're from. They don't like my name. And I found out that I wasn't the only one. None of nobody liked anybody down there. That was like a school tradition, you know. And they would say things about your mother and you say something about their mother. And the last one that was unable to say anything punched the other guy and he won. 
you know, it was sort of like the old life. But there was two subjects that caught me. There was crime and alcoholism. You could go in one way or the other, like two majors, you know. <laughs> the ones down there that majored in crime, well, they're not able to be here tonight, you know. And, uh, but you had to take a few courses in it anyhow, you know, so I didn't come out really light, you know. But uh, I did get her to call me, and, and I wanted to get out of this house of mine because I couldn't stand his stepfather, and I was like crazy. And one jackpot happened to me when I was about 15 years old that started me on this wonderful road of alcoholism. You know, I, like I tried to point out to you, I was just a wreck. I didn't fit in. I didn't feel comfortable. I was, I was nervous, uptight, self-conscious, all the things that I couldn't even have put a name to in those days because I didn't read nothing but Batman and funny books. You know, and uh, but anyhow, I, I read Reader's Digest since then, and I can comment on it, you know. But, uh, but I ended up having this jackpot. I forged my report card, you know, in the ink ran, and the, and the guy that I knew in the print shop wasn't in that day, he was suffering from a hangover or something. I couldn't get a new report card, so I had to, I had to face up, and I knew my stepfather was going to absolutely kill me this time because it come on the Come on the heels of me leaving his $15 paintbrush out. And they get hard with their painting, you know. And uh, you know, I knew he was going to get me for that, and it was this and something else, you know. And I, I was going to really get it. And I was just pacing the house, just going crazy, trying to figure out how far I could run away to on a buck and a half, you know. And I found this little gin in the icebox, and I drank it. I don't know how much was in there, it was a quarter, half a quarter, a quarter, or whatever, but I, I tell you, it had done the job. When a slow gin went down inside me, my stepfather shrunk down and was only this big. And all this self-consciousness, all this problem, all this life was such a big job, was a snap. You know, I felt just like the point of phrase of that guy from California, you know, that says that I felt like everybody looked like they felt. Everybody looked like they, they were just doing good, and I and I didn't, and I knew that I was a mess, and that I was wasn't right, I didn't look right, and and, uh, and nothing was right, and and here that alcohol just fixed all that, you know. And I said to myself, man, this is where it's at. This is what I got to do because this makes me all right. And I knew that I could go to school if I had to go to school, man. I even I could sit through them boring classes. I could even do my homework if I was having a bad. You know, just give me that spot, because then I'll be equal, I'll be up to where everybody else is at. And, uh, and I knew also that when that made me feel so good, I knew they wouldn't want me to drink it. I knew it. If it felt this good, they wouldn't let me drink it. He's drinking something, he's going to be all right, kill him, do something for him, you know. And I had a chip on my shoulder already, see. And so I, 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 I had to get out of this house. The stepfather was too rough for me. I was going with this little girl. And uh, we got married. I got married at 17. That ought to show you how bright I am. You know. <laughs> now, I've been married, I've been married 31 years. I'm married. And I got married to escape. And I'm here to tell you tonight that's no form of escape. <laughs> and I had like 13 or 14 years of drinking in that, in that relationship. And now 16 years of sobriety in that relationship. And I got the, probably the best wife in the world, best wife in the world, which is, it'll destroy a guy like me, having a woman that good. You know, when I was thinking, I wanted one of an alcoholic woman so we could have DTs together. <laughs> 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 
doctor. See, I needed a wife that was sane. Because sane people will get you up in the morning to go to work, you know. And they'll worry about them silly things that don't seem much importance while you go along, you know. Well, my wife used to get up tight when I done things. I remember some of the early things. We first had our daughter. She was just a babe in arms. And I went to visit a buddy of mine. And you know, the wife, when you go to see the buddy, the wife will take the baby always. The women always take, oh, let me see the baby. And she took the baby, and she started with the baby, and I went home. I forgot about the baby. <laughs> now, this only one years, my wife remembers that deal. You know? And, uh, you know, I come home, she said, where's the baby? The baby. <laughs> This tough world. I tell her what I thought. I'd share my feelings with her. This was the kind of relationship that we looked for, you know. I told her all these things tomorrow, and she stood there and looked at me. Now I thought that she was like digging all this and, and understanding it and, and pouring this love out, and she just was confounded with the jackass who talked like this. You know? I found out this later on, you know. But I realized after we got married. So not only was I sharing my, these negative feelings I had about them, but I had actually married into the enemy camp. You know. And and she was on their side. See, I want to tell you about a little character trait that my wife and I have in difference between each other. Now, since I'm still for a good while, I stop at stop signs. I mean, I don't really, you know, sit there or any length of time. But I stop at stop signs, see? And so does my wife. My wife always stops at stop signs. See, when I stop at stop signs for reasons, see, this is all, this is that stuff in there going around, see? And I stop because, first of all, I've gained a little humility since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous and you've been so mean to me. And secondly, you know, that, that, that by being sober, I do have some bit of sense. And uh, I don't want to hurt anybody with my car. I really don't. I feel like part of the human community, and I don't want to hurt somebody. I don't want to run over somebody with my car, cripple them. I really don't want to do that. And that's one of the reasons, the main reason. The second reason is I don't want to smash my car. You know, I like my car, and I don't want it all wrecked up. And the third reason is I don't want no cop. Give me a ticket. Because they're always hiding behind a push, you know, if you don't stop. <laughs> Can't afford that. I might rather use that farm money to buy big books for new people. <laughs> <laughs> but these are the three reasons I stop at a stop sign. And now I don't have to go through there before I stop. You know, and like it's me, I got a button on my side. Here's the ticket. Come on, kid, go. Why you stop at a stop sign? Because I'll run it otherwise if I don't think about it. And, uh, but my wife stops at stop signs all her life because you're supposed to. It's as simple as that. And, uh, what those kind of people are confounded to all my life. And, and everybody is giving me the relief of not having to worry about why they think like that anymore. I just stand here. And one, one good turn deserves another. After 30 years, now I stand here with a little, she tells me. So 
or you can get uh, just as steady them after home for the family for different reasons. Well, I got this little woman, and she, I'm sure she wanted things like white picket fences and a nice guy and all that crap, and getting slippers and everything else. Well, it turned out to be a slipper when I early in my program. As a matter of fact, a couple of guys in the group called me Jack the Slipper the first 15 months that I was around. And I didn't think that was a damn bit cute, you know, in those days. And uh, I was advised later on that I could handle it. There was guys say, don't, don't go around him. He's great. Don't be around him. He's no good for you. He told new guys. Other new guys. You know, I hated brand new guys. When you're sober, when you've been around in AA for 15 months like I was, and you've been drunk, you hate brand new people, you know, because brand new people got a fresh start, you know. <laughs> and nobody can work on them yet. They're just going around with them. You all right? What's the problem? And uh, all they say to a guy like me was, uh, I don't know when you're going to do this program. You know? And that was a sad period. I don't want to have to go through that anymore. That's a lot of encouragement not to drink again, remembering that. And uh, well, I, I started drinking, you know, right away with this, and I ruined all my wife's little plans and hopes and dreams about what she's going to do. You know, and I, I'm not here tonight. I'm not, this is a conference, and I'll tell you what. Guys have asked me, say, well, you talk different at a conference than you do, you know. A, I talked to a group the other night with 10 people. There were no lights. There was no lights at this meeting. <laughs> and, uh, and they figured out, like, after a while, some guys told me that they, it was daylight when I started talking. They said, when well, it start starting, we <laughs> But you know, in that meeting, I, you know, I really dumped on them people because it was like it was like being at the, it's your kitchen table with your sponsor, you could dump. And I'm not afraid to dump on you folks who are here to have a nice weekend. So I'm going to tell you about my alcoholism in a general way. And uh, I don't want to torture you with all that crap, you know. Or maybe a couple of people cry if I tell you your story. <laughs> but I feel good today. I feel grateful today. And I genuinely believe that my alcoholism is a disease. That's why I'm not wallowing up here with a lot of grief and regrets about what I did because I was a drunken SOB because I was sick with alcoholism and they fixed me in here with all that hard stuff they make you do. And they, they embarrassed me and you goaded me and you humiliated me and made me read stuff I didn't want to read and go to meetings I didn't want to go to and hurt my feelings and sided with my wife <laughs> and told me that my boss should fire me. And right after I finally agreed with me, when I finally agreed with them to tell the right that I was an SOB and I wasn't, uh, my wife was right and I was wrong, they said, no, she ain't, you're all right now. <laughs> they said, you ain't all that bad. <laughs> no. But don't get too happy when they say that because we'll just beat you all back up. But I, uh, I started drinking and uh, doing what I had to do to be happy. You know, if you're an alcoholic, you're the way you're going to be happy drink. And see, well, all, my, all my drinking days, I thought sobriety was the period that I didn't drink. That's why I never wanted sobriety. When I was new in the air, I didn't want sobriety because I thought sobriety was those periods of not drinking during my drinking. Because I was completely happy in the beginning of my drinking when I was drunk. See? And I couldn't understand about coming to AA to get sober because I didn't want to be sober. I wanted to be all right. You know, my idea of sobriety during my drinking days was when I didn't drink for a couple of days when I was like this. Well, I quit. You don't know I ever drink for three days? You know? 
Well, what am I going to do in December? When Christmas comes? Think of that. You know. Well, I walk around, I go down the stairs, I come upstairs, and there's some church that says, man, she cooks the exercise. You know. <laughs> so, well, I collect women and start with your old lady. How do I like that? until he got real spiritual. Real spiritual. It's an amazing thing. I bet you only got less stamp collectors per capita than any other organization. But I'm drinking through out there and I'm, and I'm doing the best I can and I'm failing at everything because I'm a drunk. You know, when you're drunk like I was, you're just, you're late for everything and you don't show and you, your car gets wet. You know, I had a kind of car that was like, Oh, it was a beast always. You know, the windows weren't rolled down in the summer, they weren't rolled up in the winter, the windshield wipers busted on my side, you could lean over. Got four different sized tires on them, they're all bulbs, you know, and your lights are supposed to hang them down by one bulb. You can't get the bulb off, you know what I'm saying? You take any non alcoholic, you got a screwdriver, you take the bulb off. You can't get an alcoholic bulb off. The bulb is on there. The slot is, is worn off. When you turn it, everything turns. You know? You try to reach up in there, you cut your hand because some son of a bitch must have been following that license plate. You know? Just everything is bad. Everything. And while you're doing all this, a cop will come because you're always doing it in somebody's yard or something. You try to turn your car around and you knock his stinking mailbox down. You know, then you're stuck in his, in his yard where his flowers are, and that's real soft, and you dig in down to the house. Now you're in there, but this time with the, your muffler's gone, so the car's loud, his lights are on, he's coming out, what are you doing in my yard, you know? So I'm just driving up and down, you know, trying to get out of here, you know? And I was always in these kind of things. And I just thought, like, man, I, I mean, it's, you know, the only thing that helped me was booze, but I'm finding out now as I get into my drinking, the more I drink, the more I compound my problems, see? Because I already, I'm having this childhood crap that I drug with me, like an albatross, you know, dragging up there. And I drug that clean and dirty, and hey, stop taking off. Well, give me that. I want it there. And they finally got it all off me, you know, and I felt a lot better, but I didn't want to let go of none of that. Because, damn it, when somebody's not right to you, you know, you want to hang. I want somebody to hate, you know, and uh, that's what I thought would be an AA, and it was the only thing, see. But then I was with all these problems day in and day out, and the only thing I would do about it is drink. I drive my wife crazy with this stuff. I drive myself crazy. I want to tell you, typically, my wife was trying to make a family out of this mess, whatever it was, you know. And I had a little girl, when my girl was 10 years old, we got another little girl. I had two lovely girls in my life, in my life, and uh, and she wanted to make a family out of this. And, and because of it, we got involved in things. My wife involved me in things that smacked of being community-minded or smacked of being being people-oriented, you know. And I was a part. I wanted to get on the bar and drink and dance and boogie and come home and make love if I could stand up, you know. <laughs> These are the kind of things I want to do, and I, and I just, uh, they didn't work out. And my wife, I want to tell you about a typical deal with me. I drank every day. If I had money, I drank. And, uh, 
Even if there's only a dime, I just go there. I'd walk all the way down the street to get a 10 cent draft and hope I'd find somebody in there I could work something out, you know. And I got involved in all kinds of things to support that, like football pools and numbers. You know, football pools, I find they pay 40%, and I forget to turn them in. And it's a guarantee if you don't turn them in, they hit. You know, and I remember a guy hit for 150, and there was no way I could not pay him. And I had to, I had to get out of my higher power in those days. By the way, it was beneficial finance company. <laughs> <laughs> he was really hurt when he got them for higher power. And uh, but they wouldn't give me any more confidential loans because I didn't pay them. You know, and uh, so I had to get her involved. And there's my wife and me and the guy that hit my football pool, like a little family. You know, standing in there waiting for Mr. Farnsworth, you know, there's always a guy like that, 23-year-old always that runs the office, you know, and he's got a three-piece suit on, you know, and blonde hair and Nordic features, just a lovely young man, you know, and he don't have time for you, and he puts an 18-year-old little girl over there, don't know her name, and she says, oh, Mr. Dempsey, and Mr. Farnsworth, he'll be with you in a year, just sit there. <laughs> And finally, after you go through it all, and you sign four million papers, and you promise them you'll stab your mother if you don't pay, they give you four or five hundred dollars and charge you fourteen hundred for it. And uh, by the time you get done paying that off, you ought to be sober. You ought to cut off on your twenty-fifth day anniversary. Surprising what five hundred will get you, you know. And now. Uh, so anyhow, I, mean, I had to do things like this all the time. But I'd get drunk on payday. I was a blue-collar problem breaker. Reader's Digest calls us that. <laughs> and the blue-collar problem breakers like millwrights and pipefitters and carpenters, men. I am men, boy. And uh, we got drunk on men. You know, that was I got paid on Thursday, so I did Thursday. Thursday was the day to get drunk, and you had to spend all day at it. Now, Friday, I wanted to go out in those road houses and pretend that I was a music musician and, and all that. And I got drunk Friday. And Saturday was the day off, so I got drunk as soon as I come to, no matter where I was. And Lord knows where I'd be. You know, it was always a big surprise to me. I could still surprise I'd work out the sun in my eyes and I'd be in my car. There would be 400 degrees in there. And there'd be little kids knocking on my window. The one I'm saying, you go. The one I'm saying, you go in there. Oh, you know? And you know, you hear a mother in the back, and I say, Johnny, get away from that car, that damn pervert's in there. You know? I never was a pervert. I always wanted to be, but I never was. And I was so humiliated all the time with this crap that I just was angry. I was just angry all the time because every time I had a good time, it turned out bad. It turned out like that. And so I, I'd get home from that, and, I, and I'd have to walk on a, my, my wife would be waiting for me when I come home, early in my drinking. Was just, she was just waiting, waiting for him. And uh, her mouth was connected to the doorknob, mechanically. Uh, Eleanor did something. I took the links out of her or something like that. But I, I'd go in there and just fight with her. And you know, and I'd come back off that side and boy, I was sick and I was broke and I was nervous and upset and I had all these problems and stuff that I got into over the weekend and, I'm, and I'd be just drunk as hell. So we, I'd go home Saturday sometime and we'd have a fight and I'd go back out and I'd really tie her on. A lot of times I didn't have any money and I'd, and I'd steal off of her or you know, get in her purse and take some money or I'd rob her my daughter's bank. I remember doing that. And I remember being, that was the point I wanted to make. I remember doing that here in AA. It seemed like when I came here, I didn't listen to the same as I do now. And I used to hear these stories, and these people used to get up there and talk.
build that story up to a crescendo where they were really rotten, dirty, rotten folks by the time they got done with themselves. And they say, and then, my God, I robbed my child's bank. You know, and I used to sit out and think, what the hell's the matter with that? <laughs> now, I knew my wife thought that was bad. But you see, about that time, I figured my wife was crazy because my wife would get mad because I take 50 cents out that night. But she'd get mad when I go on drunk and give my little girl 10 bucks. You know, I got lucky off three more mistakes. I'm a zero, baby, here's 10 bucks. And then she's mad because I took two dollars worth of pace. You know? If you're an alcoholic and you're in there on a Saturday afternoon or something when you're really sick and drunk and you're up there with a knife trying to you're getting four or five stinking pennies at a time and all that work and you get out of all these pennies, you know, to a bar and got the humiliation of saying, Look what he brought there, look at this, Jim. Deserve them pennies if you went through all that. You can make amends now. You can go back and give your child some money, but by God, you heard that, you know. But I was a mess. But I'd be drunk that Saturday, like I say, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. You know, this would be one of my typical binges. Three or four day drunk, and Sunday morning would come, and my wife was ready to be Ozzy and Harriet with the with the burnout here, you know. And I'm laying in bed in the comatose or whatever the hell happens to you after four days of drinking and you don't hurt anymore. This way. And she'd come in with a, she used to use a dust mop because there was ballast on the end. And she'd stick it in my ribs and go like that. Oh. And I'd go over and I'd throw it on the side of the bed. i said, what do you want? You know, and then we'd play a game. You know, you know. Now you're drinking four days and you're sick and you got all these fears that you don't want to play this stuff, you know. And you know it's not your turn to choke her or anything. <laughs> now, I tell you, I used to, a lot of times I'd get my wife by the throat, you know, I, and, I, and, and I'd try to talk to her, because she wouldn't listen. So I'd give her to her, and I didn't want to listen at all. They just shut you, if you got them by the throat, they just, you want, they won't pay attention. There's no use talking to them, they won't listen. And, uh, and I, I learned that, but I just couldn't help myself. It seemed if I get my hands on her, I could make her understand, you know. And she just didn't. And I knew it wasn't my turn to do that because all the stuff I had done, I'm sure, by the condition I was in and how mad she was, I must have been doing something. And uh, reports would be coming in soon, you know. There are a lot of people out there willing to help, you know. In case you missed anything, Mrs. Debsy, let me tell you. Not only what he said, but what he did. Oh, tell me about it, you know. And uh, but I'd get up on the side of bed, and my daughter would be over the corner, and I was so cynical by the time I got into this that I thought my wife had placed my daughter there, you know, with a tear coming down her cheek, you know, and she's crying because, I guess because she's a nervous wreck, but I thought her mother would say, cry, so he'll be guilty, you know, he'll feel guilty then, he'll do something. And I'd look over at her, and I'd have these mixed emotions about my little girl, and I wanted to tell her, and I knew she wouldn't understand it, baby, your daddy's not like other daddies, and I can't help myself. I want to be all the things you need. But more than that, I want you to be able to be happy without me having to be whatever the hell I can't be. Because I can't even run my own life, let alone help you with yours. And I was so bone ashamed that I couldn't do that. Because I thought everybody else was doing that. That everybody out there was doing the right things by their kids. Except my relationship with my father and all the sins that the father visited upon the son. The quote the Bible, see. This is how I felt, and I started to resent God. And I'm sitting there, and my wife's telling me, you know what you have to do today, you promised. And I said, what in the hell did I promise that got you getting me up there, and I don't feel good. You know, you shouldn't feel good. We've waited 15, 20 minutes of that, you know. 
She'd say, well, I'll tell you what she promised. You promised to take the family to the zoo. So you're kidding. <laughs> I didn't do that. Yes, you did. Your daughter's there like this. Okay, we're going to go to the zoo. I have to run out to the car in the condition I am to make sure the car's there. If it's there, to make sure it's in one piece. Or maybe there's uh, something in it or somebody in it. I, gotta, I know I got to deal. I had to deal with everything before I could get my family, you know. And I, I have to run out there and check out. I'm finding my wife to get out of the car, you know, and we'd all get in there and get out of the suit. We'd be the last ones that seemed to get there and we'd have to park in the furthest parking spots. You know, them, they got the yellow lines up for special parking right in front. You know, and me, I had to park down there with us, you know, 400 miles away. And they designed it so it's all uphill, you know, and, it's, and they, put the, they put the building so that the sun shines in your eyes as you're walking up, you know. And you get up there, and my wife, looking back on it, and seeing she manipulated me around until I was right in front of the hippopotamus. You know, and then if my girl and my wife would get behind me, like get me near it, and the animal's right here, and waves of that stinking beast would come over me. I'd be standing there with this four day drunk in me, and I just, oh, and it, it would well up inside me, and I wanted to help you with something. You know, you don't have to throw up. It's, you don't have to. It's like, like the opposite of AA, just don't let go. <laughs> And when you're doing that, your eyes are watering, your ears are ringing, your nose is burning with way thrown up. And while you're in the middle of that, some one of them always says, that seems to be a trouble. You don't need to carry on a conversation. You're just barely not puking. And standing there, and I would catch out of the corner of my eye, the rest of the world, they were all there, and they were all just loving to be there. Everybody wants to be at the zoo. You know, oh, Uncle Harry, look at the monkeys. Oh, yeah, it's Uncle Harry, got one dude, baseball hat sideways. Oh, yeah, that's funny, you know. And there were all these little kids bumping you with suckers and crap, and knocking you in here, this filthy hole. The stinks in here, and they're eating peanuts in their little candy running down here, and his stomach's turning over, and I say, Jesus, and my wife says, you don't want to be down that slow bar car, you know, with a music song, and got an air conditioner, you know, hey, come on, baby, let's get down there, and I have a few drinks, and you can sit there all around me for a while, and we'll dance, and we'll make love, you know, tell your mother watch the baby, you know, the baby wants to go to the zoo, and if you ain't got a body, you stay here, enjoy yourself, you know, and I'm standing there enjoying myself. <laughs> Family and them right up there beside me, like as if God put him there. So look at this shack. You know, if you straighten out, you could be like, there's a guy, a nice jacket on, you know, a little bit like George, you know, and gray, his temples and steel gray eyes, you know. And he's got this woman clutching his arm, looking up into his steel gray eyes adoringly. And there's my wife smiling at me. You know? And he got a little boy, a little boy scamper off. He'd say, Johnny, and the kid would stop, just like that. Turn around and say, yes, father. He'd say, come back here, son, and the kid would run back, and then head the father and the son would spar, and he'd rub his head, and the mother would step back and say, that's my men, my big man and my middle man. And I would just say, no. My little girl run off, and I know her. I know my little girl's like a bundle of 
lose, but I know it's my fault, and I can hardly live without without a fifth of gin and meat. You know, when you know you're screwing your whole family up and not only yourself, you're not saying, oh, well, I'm screwing my family up. <laughs> you know, it's tearing your guts out, and every alcoholic in this room knows, but you've got to get up every day and start life again. You know, and the very people that you're crushing with all this is telling you, don't kink, don't kink. You're going to go over to my own drink, I'm going to blow my brains out. You know, well, that might not be a bad idea. <laughs> But there I stand there with all this, this confusion and everything, and, and my daughter runs off like that little boy, and I say, I'm not able to say Debbie, you know, because I'm, I'm rattled, man. I'm all wired up and sick. I say, Debbie, I hold her, and she don't say yes, father. She screams, rawr! And the mother, when one of the cubs is threatened by him or it, she turn on me, don't you holler at that child after what you did, you know? And I don't even know yet, you know? And I'm going to know soon. And, uh, I mean, it was all kind of things. I remember stopping at the news colony. I know I remember bringing paperwork home. You know, I, I did things when I was drinking. It seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, I was living with reckless abandonment, you know. And, uh, so I, I'd have a big fight with my wife in front of these people and be further and further humiliated and be gone. And it was just that kind of thing time after time. One more total humiliation for my family and myself because of my my need to drink, my need to live that kind of life because I couldn't live any other way. I couldn't stand what I thought was right. I went through reading all the self-improvement books I could get my hands on, and that'll just make you squirrely as hell if you want to get into that. And uh, after I got through doing that, my wife was bringing clergy in. She used to round them up. They must have went to clergy conventions and bring them in. And they'd come in the house back to back and talk to me, you know. And I'd win the arguments with them, and they'd go out and they'd tell my wife they were sorry. I'm sorry, Mrs. Dempsey. And I just sit there and think about why they were sorry. They're sorry because they weren't professional enough to help me, you know. Or were they sorry because I was in such a fix and they understood what a problem I had? Or were they sorry that woman had to live with a jackass like me? What were they sorry about? But evidently, they had lost hope with 15, 20 minutes conversation with me. And they knew what I already knew, that I was hopeless and helpless. There was no way I could operate. I cannot operate because not only can I not live without drinking, that terrible knowledge comes to you that you can't live drinking no more. You can't drink like this. It don't work. And you already know you can't face life. You can't get by without drinking. You're in one hell of a fix. And that's the fix I was in. My wife had me go to see a psychiatrist. The last thing he told me was keep coming back, drinking back. <laughs> he told me I was awake or something or other. And I thought about that after I got sober. I'm awaiting every goddamn thing. You know, I can't imagine what I would have done if I kept drinking. And uh, I'm glad I didn't do a lot of damn things I could have done because I was crazy. You know, absolutely crazy. And when I drank, I was worse. And uh, so I ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what happened to you. Drink like that, you look like a jackass, you end up here, you know. And that's the way I thought about it those days. I didn't want to come here because I was certain that everybody in the world that I didn't like, every stereotype I could stand, were here waiting for me. With bubbles and tambourines and philosophy and, and discipline and everything, you know. And there wasn't none of those people here. I didn't know what happened to them. You must keep them in the cellar somewhere. <laughs> But Alcoholics Anonymous started their, uh, their miracle on me. You know, there's a couple things I want to I touch on about that that's important to me. 
you know. And there's probably somebody out there that I can help with this stuff, see. Because there was all these speakers in Alcoholics Anonymous to help me, see. Some of you might be damn bit of good say, Christ, I'm going to get drunk another ten minutes of that son of a bitch. That's it. You know. but, uh, but there's somebody out there like me, and I'd love to know that. I know that. I, uh, I had trouble with the second step. I had the first step not going to bother before I ever heard of me. Hey, I knew that I was part of sober alcohol. My life was unmanageable. I knew that. And when I was ready to accept the fact that I was part of sober alcohol, I would have never drew a sober breath from then on. Because I suspected that. I'm powerless over, and if you're powerless over alcohol, you're going to drink. There ain't no not drinking if you're powerless over drinking. That stuff you make a damn bit of sense to me when I come in here. People say, you get the first step yet? Yeah, I got drunk last week. <laughs> I used to tell old farmers, I said, I killed the soul when you got to the second step. I said, this is another crazy son of a bitch. We have another one like that. I think you better go to talk to so-and-so. You know. And I'll talk to people. And you know, the thing was that the second step was, was killing me. Because later on, if you read the big book, it says something in the big book that we're, we're not going to make it here. There'll come a day when you're absolutely defenseless against the first drink unless you found a part of it within yourself that you can draw on in that weak time. So looking back on it, this jackass was right about that. It wasn't the first step, you know, that made me get drunk. I didn't, I never forgot that I was powerless over alcohol. I just succumbed to being powerless over alcohol. What I labored with new in Alcoholics Anonymous was that I didn't come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, not because that's what they say here, but because of what I heard here, because I listened with another trait they talk about when they refer to an alcoholic. They say we're quick to have contempt prior to investigation. And that was my lifestyle. I had everybody pigeonholed. I knew what you were going to say before you said it. I knew by the way you dressed, by the way you looked, by how you even smelled. I knew what you were and what you were going to say, and I just shut everybody down. Because I wanted to bypass all, all human intercourse. I wanted to just go on ahead and do it easier, softer way. I don't understand. You know, I, I, I know that. I know all that. Let's get down to this. Are you giving me the 50 bucks or not? You know, it's the kind of guy I was. So I didn't hear, we came to believe that a fire ourselves could restore us to sin. That's not what I heard. What I heard when they said that was, do you believe everything that Methodist minister told you when you were a little snot? I mean, every damn word, the words about the Apostles' Creed and everything. And if you're a good Methodist, you believe that God ascended, uh, Jesus ascended right into heaven. He didn't descend first into hell like the Catholics say. And he didn't not go at all like the Jews say. And he didn't go and come back as a dog like the third world says, you know. You believe it the way the Methodist minister told you, and that's not what these people said here. They give me all the room in the world here. They got every belief in the world in alcoholics and honors. Certainly we're in a Christian country, and most people are Christians. And I'm not here to offend any Christians. But I'm not in here to save the ass, not the soul, of an alcoholic like myself and myself. Because I find a higher power. And I think the most cynical, the most skeptical, the hardest-nosed son of a bitch out there is going to get sober if he's humble enough to say there is a power greater than myself and get down on your knees and thank that power for saying so. Because this jackass had to do it. And I didn't want to do it. I wanted to quote Nietzsche and other creeps like that to scare everybody and step on all the flies, make, make the girls cry. 
because I didn't know how to enjoy life. I didn't know what was good. I didn't know how good it was. I didn't know I could be part of this. I didn't know that people didn't have to be vulgar and ignorant and all that stuff to be nice, to be funny, to be good. To be good in the sense of being a, a joy to be with. You know. And everybody else's little quirks and character defects and stuff like that don't mean a damn when you get down to the bottom line. Because it was the weirdest assortment of people in the world in Alcoholics and Uncles. And they all could pile in one damn car and just laugh like hell and have a good time. <laughs> it's the damnedest thing anybody ever saw. You almost have to drink all them years and get sober and do all that stuff to even understand that or, or be able to cope with it. Yeah. I see people who join AAs that I've been around and that have run into my AA friends. And then when they're with my AA friends, they're laughing and smiling and going, my God, i never seen I Oh, my God. <laughs> You know? and, and poor them. Poor them that they don't know that this is a way of life for us here. They think it's a whole way of life. But I kept going to meetings the first 15 months in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got drunk about four or five times. See? And uh, every three or four months I just got drunk. And looking back on it, you know why? Because I'm an alcoholic. That's why I got drunk. Because I was going to meetings everything I could do. But I just kept wanting this thing and I kept doing what they told me to do even though I didn't believe it. I didn't want it. And you know, finally... I didn't take the second step. The second step just became what I thought. I mean, I just thought one day, and I thought, I, I actually believe that a power greater than myself is going to fix me up here. Because it's a power example of what had already happened to me. I was going to meetings with guys. I was practicing day at a time, practicing easy does it, practicing letting go. I didn't know what to let go to. I just let go. Just quit being that. Quit being that way, for Christ's sake. And I said, okay. And I, and I just go to meetings, and I, and I did what they did. You know, and they shared it. I said, what the hell are you crowding about? Listen to this. You know, and the other AAs would lay a story out, and he said, you're hell. And I had some in and, uh, and I And I started to identify and feel one with and all that stuff, you know. And so I was able to experience what was given to me. I came to believe in the power that myself could restore me to sin. And once I started to believe that, there was no problem to turn my will and my life over to care of that. And looking back on it, I didn't know at the time, but what that entailed was for me to do what you folks do. I had to do the AA thing. In other words, I had to go to meetings, I had to have a home group, I had to get a sponsor, I had to participate in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had to sit down and take my own inventory and look at all the stuff that I hated. And I had to go and tell somebody. Now, in those days, when I got to tell somebody I had ideas of my own, I wanted to tell it to somebody who would be sick and hope they died. You know, <laughs> so there's nothing could ever get out of you know. Because I didn't want to tell them that dirty, rotten stuff about myself. But I did. I was already fretted about the difference between step six and seven, the difference between a shortcoming and a character. In fact, I worried about that. I used to go to meetings and argue and fight about that. And looking back on it, I didn't know what the hell those things were, but I had ideas and I was wrong about a lot of things. And maybe I'll be wrong again next month or next year. But today I feel that my shortcomings and my character defects are things that hurt. Because it was very difficult for me to get down on my knees and ask God to remove things that I didn't think was bad. Please God, don't let me never look at a set of nice legs again. You know, that's not what I had in mind. But I can ask God, I can ask God to please God, don't let me feel like a rubbish all the time. Please God, don't, don't let me be so resentful. Don't let me be full of hate and anger. 
please God, help me with this guilt. Help me with these things that hurt. Because I'm not taking God's will off of him anymore. That's his, his job, you know. I mean, I'm supposed to do what I'm supposed to do. When I get up in the morning, if I feel comfortable doing that's what I'm supposed to be doing, you know. Maybe if I'm checking some girl out a little bit, maybe God needs her ego pumped up. So she needs, she needs let's see, I'm going to get eight jackasses down there to weaken her. You know, and she'll be all right. You know, but he's all full of guilt, can't use that jerk. You know. <laughs> so I just don't know these things. You know, I don't, I don't even pretend to even think that I have any kind of idea what God's will is for me. All I know is that when I'm getting along with my friends and I'm feeling good about myself, I'm doing fine. I'm doing what I feel in my spirit is God's will. God would let me rest on some of these things, and then I'd get like a little bit of bump, and I had to do stuff, and I had to go make amends. I had to make amends to my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, my brother-in-law. I had to make amends to myself and my family. It took me five years to make amends to my family to my satisfaction. Now, you might get a hold of my wife someday and say, is he through with his amends? She might say, oh, no. <laughs> but I had to do it for myself, and at the time, I didn't know it. But once I got doing what I, what the best I could do was the wreckage of fast, cleaning up that barn door, that barn that blew down with the heritage, the stack of wood and build some kind of a, a new shed, a new barn, you know. I had to do those things, and I've done those things. And then I had a time when, when and I hated that stepfather, I blamed everything on him, I had to make a mess to him. Toughest thing I ever did in my life. My stepfather was a guy that, but when I wasn't busy, it was sort of like a hobby, I hate him. You know, I'd sit around at meetings and hate him. Like the speaker one day or anything, I'd just sit here and hate my stepfather. And that knot was in my gut. And I'm sure everybody had something like that that they hated. And I ended up, I had to go see him. He had run me off to Chicago where he lived. To sit down with him, and I did. Amazing things happened. I sat there, and I was sober three years when I talked to him. And he heard me all out, and I had taken my inventory about my relationship with him. In the beginning, I didn't think I'd done anything to him, but I certainly had. I was a little smart kid, and he wanted to be my father when he married my mother. He offered to change my name. He wanted to change my name to his, and be my father, I wouldn't let him. I wanted to keep the name Dempsey. You know, I was just a little smart rat. Looking back on it, I could see where that agitated him, and he had his own drinking problem to contend with, and we just didn't get along, and I blamed everything on him. And the bad things that did happen between him and I just festered and just crippled me. And I ended up telling him all these things. I told him how I bad-mouthed him drunk in bars, and how I got in AAs and mentioned him in Leeds, and bad-mouthed him in AA. And he's just heard me all out when I was done. He said, hey, Jack, don't worry about all this crap you did when you was a kid and you weren't living here. He says, you're in that A and A or whatever the hell it is now. He says, how long are you serving now? Two years? Like, three. So all right, three, two, three. You know, he said, uh, yeah, well, a lot of the difference between two and three that was to me, but I didn't say that. I bit my lip. And he said, you know, it's good now. He said, well, you're not bothering me, uh, coming out here on these visits. You know, you come out here one time, didn't know you was here. You remember that? You remember hearing about that? And I said, yeah, I know. I didn't want to talk about that. He said, well, you did. You used to come out here one day and you're surprised because your mother answered the door. He said, Mom, what the hell are you doing here? You know, here you are in Chicago. And uh, he said, you're not doing that now. He said, your, your wife's not writing these uh, tear-stained letters to your mother anymore, you know. Everything's getting good. You got out of that dump you had with all the wall cockroaches and you moved out to one of those suburban houses out in the newer building, whatever the hell you call it out there. He said, no, I'm, uh, I want to tell you something, boy. He says, I'm proud of you. I thought, damn, he never ever said that, you know. And I, I just pumped up. He said, I'm going to tell you why I'm proud of you. I thought, boy, he, he must have heard about some of the good works I did. Hey? <laughs> And uh, he said, I'll tell you why I'm proud of you. He said, I'm proud of you because I've made you what you are today. 
And you know, I had a laugh like you yeah, I had a laugh because that was like the bottom line that I should have suspected if I had any sense about me. And I thought, by damn, I, I had what I thought was a tough job here was really nothing. Because that man was strong in his way. He was a tough old school type guy that says, beat the hell out of kids, get bad, boom! You hit the kid, shut up, kid! You know, and that was the way he lived, and I was out of that, and here I was dragging all that through, and he was halfway right about the things. He made me tough enough so I could work in a shop, make money, and get my overtime when I wanted it, and fight for my rights and all that stuff. I'm sure he'd give me that gift, otherwise I might have been candy hind in on me. I don't know what would happen. But he did good for me in some areas. But I no longer had to hate him. I walked out of this knowing once again his steps, the action that they, they told me to take in Alcoholics Anonymous works. And naturally I had a million of those coincidences happen to me that I wouldn't even want to get into. There's just so many things happen that just make them cynics, make those skeptics like myself say, <laughs> something up there, man. Something going on here. Just the damnedest things happening in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we're truly blessed. My family's good sped today. My family likes me. I cut the grass today, my house, because it's my grass. It used to be hers, her kids, her house. When that house was hers, I let the grass get that high. It's a cut of a sickle. We hope she was in there somewhere. And now these things, along with the responsibility of mine, the Alcoholics Anonymous made out of me what I always envy, just being a damn human being, like them other folks walking down the street. And as a bonus, they give me friends like you. God bless you. Thank you.